0: Welcome to Day 1 of More To Come's San Diego Comic-Con coverage.
1: Hi, this is Heidi McDonald, uh, reporting live from Comic-Con San Diego 2015 for More To Come, Publishers Weekly's podcast about comics and graphic novels. And we're surrounded by them right now. And I am here with Christy Valenti, who is an editor at Fantagraphics. Christy, how's it going? Well, how's it going for you? It's okay. Now, Comic-Con started like five minutes ago. And how's the first five minutes been?
0: It's been great. I'm hoping people will buy all of our beautiful books at the Fantagraphics booth, which is 1718. 1718. Come on down.
1: Now, Christy, you edit. Uh, What are you editing right now? You edit graphic novels. And tell us about some of the projects that you've
0: been working on. We just sent a book called Eater not to the printer. It's a seminal Argentine graphic novel that was originally serialized and it's a sci-fi comic that's a political allegory for events that happen in Argentina. And actually the creator, one of the person who wrote it, was disappeared by the government because he did a biography of Che. Holy cow. Now when did this book come out originally? It started in the 50s. Uh, it was new. Sci-fi was new. There was um, a new people were being educated and there was these new readers. And so they. this writer was what's, very, his, what's his name? His name was Osterheld. And he was very ambitious. And they were serializing this. He was a publisher also. And it, it's a symbol of resistance. The Juan Salvo, who is these... Well, not the main hero because it's about collective heroism. Uh, but his image is used as a symbol of resistance to this day, and it's graffiti from the subways.
1: Wow. So so this graphic novel came out, how, how long was the original publishing? I mean, it came out, like, was it serialized? I believe or? it came out over five
0: years. So you can imagine, like, each installment, people were like, what is going to happen? Right. And so in the ending, I can't even imagine what happened at the ending. Just trying to imagine waiting...
1: What's what, what your back there? Snoopy just walked <laughs> by, and I'm not even exaggerating. Sorry. So I can just imagine an entire
0: nation like <laughs> yeah. waiting to hear what is the
1: fate of Long Sullivan. Wow. Now this is what, uh, what's the name again? Can you spell the name just so our readers it, can check it out?
0: Eternat. E T E R N A U So this is the first English
1: language publication of this book, obviously. Um, What do you, uh, I mean, is it, it, I don't know, it sounds fascinating, uh, but it's not known here. I mean, I can't think of any South
0: American comics that are really well known in the United States at all. Yes, but the thing is, it's also sci-fi. So -hmm. you don't, you won't be maybe getting into politics, Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of action, adventure, human drama there's some comedy and it's beautifully cartooned it's solano lopez so oh
1: okay solano lopez there we go yeah
0: Yeah. so it's it's (laughs) but like it's realistic it's amazing you i just want everyone to read it it's an amazing work that's very it's a great read but it's also significant
1: and it just came out uh, you said it just went to the printer so probably will be out in a couple months here yeah yeah. Three to five. Okay, so so something to look forward to. Now, no, Christy, how on earth did you hear about this comic?
0: Well, I, I edited it.
1: Yeah, but I mean, how did you? I uh, mean, how did you acquire I, it?
0: I believe Gary went to Argentina, ah. and I I think a lot of people there were really excited to show him work, and I think he developed a relationship with the heirs. Again, you'd have to check with Gary for factual accuracy, but I believe this is... So he came back with things to publish. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. I
1: was talking to uh, Linears uh, at uh, Book, Th- uh, Book Expo. It's uh, hard. Sorry, re- listeners. very hard to remember uh, the past few months. But yeah, he was actually talking about South American comics oh. and, and trying to get them... Uh, you know, a little bit more publicity. So this, I guess this kind of ties with that. Now, no, uh, Christy, what other books have you been working on lately? So? Well,
0: speaking of translation, I'm working on Creepax.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah,
0: we've had some really fun conversations about how to translate certain absurdist, naughty terms. Um, but if you're not aware, Creepax basically... Elevated erotica to a literary Genre in Europe In the 60s And he was a big influence on the new wave Movement of fashion uh, Design it's beautiful cartooning. It's extremely naughty. Yes, it is very
1: explicit. I have some of his uh, stuff that was published a long time ago here in the United States, but it hasn't been available in a while in in uh, in English. Now, what books of Peepax are you, are you bringing out?
0: So I'm working on the, the first volume. We're going to do, I believe, nine or ten. Mm-hmm. So it's been really fun. We've had such because I you know we're working with interns. We've we've all been just exclaiming over it or <laughs> well, just like yeah
1: exclaiming yeah yes. I, some people might do more than explain because it is very erotic
0: yes but it's also a lot like america's next top model like it's very modern there's a part where she's like fiercer francis drake mm-hmm. and there's a model <laughs> on a bike and there's a model a model you know boxing and there, it's just it's because the main character valentina who's arguably the most independent female character at the time mm-hmm. is a fashion photographer right so there's adventures it also is very sci-fi it's very psychedelic well
1: Valentina that's the that's one of his best known books and again it's like I I have seen excerpts of Valentina and it is this beautiful uh, model uh, drawn only as PrepaX good. his work is incredibly distinctive and uh, I a question I mean um, I guess if people, he has passed away I know uh, if he were to draw a cover for Spider Woman I don't think it would be very popular I don't think it would really go over too well uh, I mean do you feel that there's you know the erotic art is uh, <laughs> I don't know I guess it's appropriate in its own place or you know do you feel any conflicts about that
0: No, actually, we have two women uh, writing essays for the book. Mm -hmm. I can't say too much about it because, again, this is not going to be out for a while. Right? So if you want to come here and buy books we have now, like Sacred Heart, but um, we have... Sarah Horrocks and Katie Scalia are supposed to write and say oh for wonderful yes. so I'm not sure again I don't want to say because no. it's not happened yet so no. I don't want to well
1: no but I, I feel like you know two really uh, smart commentators like that like Sarah and Katie I, I would be fascinated I, I mean I think it's interesting to contextualize this kind of stuff because um uh, I mean, it's beautiful. I don't. I, I'm not personally saying that I have any issue with it, but uh, you know, there's so much talk now about what is it. Is is appropriate. And, you know, I mean,
0: it actually looks a lot like Jose manga. Yes, there are oh, panels absolutely. that could be out, out of you know, Muglano, yeah, uh, yeah. people like that. So I feel like it's very fresh and contemporary it, it, in a it lot is, of ways. Yeah.
1: Now what, uh, talk about some of the books that you have here. You mentioned Sacred Heart. Now that is,
0: uh, that is a web comic Oh,
1: by Liz Suburbia. Yeah. Yes. And it's
0: about a town where the parents left and these punk kids just have to do the best they can. We have Bright Eyed at Midnight by Leslie Stein, which is a diary of, like a best of her diary for a year. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, there's
1: a new Jason book out. Holy oh, cow! Oh, I edited
0: that too. Oh, well, so no way. Now, I, now, now, my heart is is pounding. I, I what become, is it like
1: to edit the Great well, Jason?
0: I don't. I shouldn't say edit. I <laughs> yeah. I work with the translation. Yeah. I, I work with the words. I'm not like yeah. a. I'm not an acquisitions editor. I don't,
1: yeah, I yeah. don't. I don't feel like Jason needs too much help, to be honest.
0: Well, there's some really amazing stuff in there. The last story, I it's so moving. But yeah. it's also fun. There's a lot of really fun things. Yeah. I mean, there's so many amazing. Dorfler just came out, which is this post-apocalyptic female character.
1: That's... Uh, you know, you know re- uh, listeners, I wish you could see these books as we're talking. I'll have to do a supplementary post with uh-huh. some art because uh, if you were here, you'd be buying them. That's all I can say because they're gorgeous. They're just beautiful. Yeah, I
0: mean, I could talk about every new book we have but, forever. Well,
1: now, Christy. Uh, I'm a big fan of your writing. I'm a big fan of your comics criticism. And you are uh, really one of the most astute comics historians who uh, I've read. You used to write back when Comicsology started. They actually ran all these really interesting essays, and you did quite a few. Um, but yeah, I mean, are you do you ever feel the itch to write about comics more? Or?
0: I would love to. I think part of the problem is I have a lot of opinions, and I just need to write them down. Oh, well, there you go. I'm an opinionated woman.
1: Well, we need that. We need a lot of opinionated women. What do you? I mean, is there any trends that you've been noticing of late that really you wish you could uh, jump in on?
0: Post-apocalyptic. We have many books. We have Dorfler. We have Black River by Josh. Simf- Everybody read Black River. Oh by my Dad. God,
1: yeah. that book is so good. Yeah. I, I, it is like this. Po- again, it's post-apocalyptic zombie starring all these women. It, it melts together. Uh, strong women characters, uh, zombies, post apocalyptic fiction. I mean, it just hits every bingo, number pen, on the bingo. The pen
0: and ink yeah. depiction of the Aurora, you've never seen pen and ink depictions of Aurora Borealis. Like, your face yeah. will be blown off. And
1: it's a beautifully produced book as well. But let me ask you then, I noticed that. Another book by a different publisher, Ad House, Put Out the Oven by Sophie Goldstein, another kind of interesting social commentary. And I know you actually, you have been publishing quite a few kind of like post-apocalyptic kind of fantastic science fiction fantasy books by indie cartoonists which should have in the past you know the the stereotype was they all did books about what they ate for breakfast and then how they jerked off uh but they uh, seem to have changed a little bit i mean why do you think that is
0: it happens in every medium there's a swing between realism and then a swing between genre it happens in film. For example, I was actually thinking about Geek Love, and it was so influential at the time because there was nothing like it. And so I think that's what's happening. I think we had sort of our sad, serious, or like our auto political. And I think people are going back to their youth and nostalgia. They're doing genre. They're doing action. They're doing sci-fi. They're doing fantasy. So I think that's what's happening is the pendulum and its
1: swinging toward genre. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating, too, because I think a lot of times, even with uh, Itardot, the book you were talking about before, I think sometimes you get to do social commentary in that kind of genre. That is even more subtle and like you know, very powerful.
0: And, and in, if you look at literature, there's a, many literary cartoonists, or sorry, literary writers. Oh,
1: people who just used words. We yeah, like them Rose, too.
0: Yes, yeah, so there's, it's, it's long. I mean, a lot yeah. of people.
1: Have, well, I mean, Orwell and Huxley, of course, just to name two. So I,
0: exactly. So there's a, a big precedent for it being both literary and um, using these tropes to get a human or universal right. truth. Now,
1: Christy, then let me ask you one other question. Do you feel, I hear all the time, that, uh, and I've written this myself, that it's a golden age for comics. Now, do you agree with that? Do you think that's true? Or? I,
0: I think, it I mean, because we have every comic in the world now, we could access everything. If you want to read a comic from 1910, you can. People can make a comic and get it out to audiences immediately. I mean, of course, there are questions about you know how do we make a living off right. of that and how minor we... detail well no i mean there there are there are a lot of questions but in terms of like what people can do and what people have access to i feel so excited because i started working in comics 12 years ago and you know you just you did not have this there was yeah. not I mean, you just look around and you could have anything. You could do anything in comics. I want to see where a comic is going to go. Yeah. I want to see... Because, you know, people have grown up with manga. People have grown up with web comics. So they could do anything. There's nothing to stop people. They don't have to... It's, it's The other thing is There's no context And that fascinates me too Because yes. people You know Up to a certain point There was Everybody knew about comics And there was a progression And there isn't anymore Right
1: You're absolutely right You know I have 20 year old
0: interns And they're amazing interns I love them But it's just they just don't know what underground comics are, right. and so there's a lot of educating we need to do. Uh, because right? Because we can't have Raina Telgemeyer if we don't have Clay Wilson.
1: That's as, right. As yeah. just and it's, well, sure to make the most you know bizarre uh, jump, but it's true. Actually, I also
0: edited an Clay Wilson book, so yes. like, again,
1: <laughs> well, I, there's another. Like, uh, if you haven't seen his work, uh, and I imagine uh, you point out some of our listeners haven't, if you want really. Body, raucous, really filthy, disgusting, and yet somehow lovable work. Uh, Esclay Wilson is your man. There's a, there's a
0: real. It's, I mean, he's the one who said crumb. He's the one who had crumb expand. He was like, whoa. I am not going far out enough. S.K. Wilson taught me to push it to the limit. So if he's the one that had come go crazy, that man is crazy. Well,
1: another one of the interesting things about, you know, people like Wilson, like, as you say, is, like, they didn't have any precedent. I mean, they didn't have any kind of, like, you know... Role models, really. They were such pioneers and such crazy people that they were just like, oh, we're going to do, you know, whatever. field drawing, like whatever filthy stuff I feel like drawing and see what happens. And luckily what happened was uh, a lot of amazing comics.
0: Yes, and I mean, you have to admire people. I mean, again, like, and we're in a place where people can do that today. They can do something totally... That we've never seen before.
1: Right. That's right. Well, Christy, you're very excited about comics, and and you're infectious. And uh, check out all these books that we've talked about. And also, I uh, do some of that writing. Get some of that stuff down, because uh, I think it would. We need we need this kind of context. I think you're in a great position to do it, actually. So. Oh, well,
0: thank you very much, Heidi. Yeah. Well, thank you, Christy. Thank you for your time.
1: Happy Comic Con. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, this is Heidi McDonald again, live from the floor at Comic-Con. We're well into preview night now, and survival is so far excellent. Uh, but I'm here with Sarah Ryan, uh, the uh, award-winning author. Uh, she is a prose author uh, who sometimes writes comics, excellent comics, uh, *Empress of the World*, *The Rules of the Heart*, and her graphic novel *Bad Houses*, which is drawn by Carlos Speed McNeil, which uh, I know I've praised many times before. Uh, Sarah, how's your Comic-Con going?
2: This is fantastic. Um, this is the first time I have been a guest of this
1: show and that's just pretty amazing yeah So uh, that, I think being a guest is probably a good way to, to start off. Um, now with with bed houses, again, it was drawn by Carlos Speed McNeil uh, which must have been an insanely wonderful uh, experience to work with Carla. <laughs> It was It was
2: unbelievable So I've known Carla For a long time And have been A huge fan of her work Ever since I first Encountered it And she was actually The artist that I had in mind When I started Writing Bad Houses When I even just Started outlining it And we were just Incredibly fortunate That me wanting To work with her Aligned with her Having time in her
1: schedule So yeah It was pretty terrific Yeah Now I, I, I've, I've talked About this book I think it's got called a little Under the radar uh, uh, and but the topic is something that so many people are fascinated by which is hoarding and which is something I struggle with myself so um, yeah I mean what what made you want to you know use that as the basis for
2: story well I realized that it was really kind of a story about figuring out what to hold on to and what to let go of and I really wanted I felt like that was a, that comics was the right format for that because, I mean, obviously you can literally represent a really crowded environment, um, but also the way comics lets you play with time, um, there's a sequence that takes like a photo booth strip and at the end of the photo booth strip you actually go back to the times when the photos were originally taken. So again, that was just something that I couldn't have done that in any right. other medium. Right, And so Things like that kind of uh, felt like comics yeah. was the right way to tell the story, and then um, uh, yes, I mean I think. There's just so much emotional resonance to again figuring out how do we figure out what we want to hold on to, figure out what to get rid of. Right,
1: right. That's so true. And uh, you know, I think in
3: uh, uh, you know the
1: world of comics, uh, I I, I mean, almost everyone I know has hoarding tendencies. You know, and uh, I was talking to uh, Caitlin McGurk of the. Billy Arnold Library, and, you know, which is, has amazing collections, but says, so many people are trying to give us their collections. I'm like, yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, this is like the hoarder's dream, especially in comics. It's like like, we're all convinced we have the most important, valuable collection, and that somebody needs to see it someday. So um, <laughs> but where, do you, where do you fall on the spectrum, yourself personally? So
2: that's an excellent question. I feel like because I have been in the position of helping to clean out, um, several environments in my time Um, I'm pretty hyper aware of accumulation so I try to be like the person who if I get something new I try to get rid of something else Um, that said we have a ton of books we have like a flat file full of mini comics and zines so
1: you know, oh, now I, I will throw in here that Sarah is uh, married to Steve Lieber, uh, pretty wonderful comics. Uh, so, you know, it's a, a mostly uh, comics friendly household. Uh, you know, you just said about a flat file full of mini comics. That would be my dream. I, I used the shoebox method, and the flat file is definitely way better. Well, as
2: a matter of fact, we got the flat file at an estate sale, uh, so it all comes around, which I is yeah. another part of Bad Houses is estate sales. Uh, uh, ah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great book about, you know, two young people who are dealing with their own, uh, as you say, as their emotional baggage and, you know, finding themselves, and uh, no, I, 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 again with Carla, I really feel this is one of the best books that came out in the last couple of years that really just didn't get get enough attention, so uh, I recommend, recommend uh, searching it out. Now, Sarah, you also worked on Wonder Woman. You did a story for Sensation Comics. How, how was that experience? That was really exciting. Um, obviously, like, what a fun
2: character to really kind of get a chance to look at.
0: Um,
2: I think what, what interests me most about Wonder Woman is just her as a female celebrity right? and the kind of... Treatment that female celebrity is always encountering. Right, so that right. was kind
1: of what I
2: focused on in my story. Right. Right.
1: Yeah, she's certainly a character with a lot of uh, a lot of aspects, and I, I do feel like Sensation Comics has really done a good job of kind of exploring them in a way. So.
2: Yeah, it's been. I love. I loved seeing the other stories and how different
1: they all are. The different art styles, everything. Carla actually has a story oh, coming that's, up that's too. That's right. Oh well, you know yeah. anything Carla does, I'm I'm interested to see. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sarah, you are best known as a prose writer, and that's sort of what you, you concentrate on. So what else is coming up from you in the, in the prose department?
2: Um, well, I'm part of an oh, anthology so kids, called yeah, The
1: Word a, that's coming out in, in here,
2: spring of 2016, yeah. um, and that is yeah, yeah, yeah. an anthology um, about really first-time experience sexual experiences, first-time sexual experiences. Oh my! So all right, yeah, yeah, Well so, so uh, I know. Yeah. So this
1: will be a good talk, like you know, inspired talk. Are you Are you working on any longer form stuff? I absolutely
2: am. I have no idea how long it's going to
1: take. So do you? I mean, what inspires you to do a book? Are you one of those? people who's always jotting down ideas or you know you get the eureka moment or does it have to gel for a long time it
2: gels for a long time typically i also am somebody who resists outlines and then i realize that i need them and it takes a long time but uh, but yeah i am working on something and i'm excited about it but I have no idea how long it will take because I also still work
1: full-time as a librarian. So. Ah, there you go. Well, you know, it's those full-time jobs. But, um, you know, we respect our librarians. Are you, what, what, uh, what kind of um, collection do you do you work uh, on? Um, I work in teen services,
2: so uh, I help people work better with teenagers oh. in a library
1: context. Well, there you go. <laughs> and uh, another theme that's explored in your work quite a bit. Well, I urge you to check out the work of Sarah Ryan. She's a wonderful author, and uh, she's a really cool lady also. So, uh, anyway, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And happy Comic-Con. Thank you. <laughs> I'm enjoying watching the journalists
0: work. <laughs> 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 and now, a quick, candid interview between Heidi and Richard Taylor, the head of WETA Workshop.
1: Are there still any items that are handmade from start to finish? Or? Yes, huge. Yeah, yeah what, what, what determines, I mean, what would
3: determine the kind of item that would be made? If we do leather work, we will still handcraft all of our leather work in This object behind me is a 100% handmade. The original core of this character was milled on a milling machine, but uh, every element has been handmade. Because we have to ship this to America and then legendary want to ship it around the world, since you made in fiberglass that sets up a challenge because if it was in silicon we would be able to just punch the hair with a needle into the flesh because in fiberglass every single hair has a 0one millimeter hole drilled into the fiberglass and then we insert a hair into every hole and glue it in wow you can imagine just doing an armpit never mind his face requires a huge amount of so uh, something like this requires incredible hand skills. So what do, what do people at Weta do for fun? <laughs> uh, they make their own movies. They do a lot of cosplay, costuming. They build garage kits. Uh, they a lot of them do incredible art exhibitions of their own work, uh, and generally hang out in the workshop. It's <laughs> fantastic. You've probably
1: seen hundreds of unique items like armor, weapons, all those things go through looking back at the process of designing all these things are there some that you have like a special attachment to that like you have stories
3: about yeah it's it's interesting if you don't fall in love with the character as corny as that may sound i really don't think that you can do justice to the character now you can you can you can love to hate them because they're despicable characters or whatever but you've actually got to be incredibly engaged with the character, with the process of making the character. And you know, my favourite character I've ever created was Lurts out of the first film of The Lord of the Rings. I just felt that we had a beautiful balance of, of creature and human and somehow it just all gelled around the actor, the film and so on. But there's been a string of amazing characters if you've had a chance to work on bringing something like um, Chappie to the screen uh, uh, helping create the armour for this movie. We've just done two other legendary movies both of them requiring lots of amazing and unique characters and uh, that's that's a joy because you're, you're developing, creating and um, devising these new characters that Hopefully, we will to take people and people will embrace. Well, it seems like an
1: amazingly creative place. Uh, What What do you think prepared you to be directing this this workshop of imagination? You know, is that what you wanted to do as a child? Or
3: (laughs) I never could have imagined that I would be running something of this scale. When I was a young child, all I wanted to do was make things. I didn't know it would be for the film industry because I didn't know the film industry existed. New Zealand in the 1970s was a very different place to America in the 1970s. So I I thought that maybe I'd end up a career in the theatre making costumes and sets, but... um, as, as life has rolled on, my wife and I moved to Wellington when we were 17 and we uh, set up a little workshop working on TV commercials and the rest is history. We got to work in the film street and uh, I just couldn't imagine a day where I don't wake up and go to make things for a living. I've never had in my 27 year career I haven't had a day when I've woken up and not wanted to get to the workshop you hang out with 150, 200 of your best mates all doing cool stuff together and uh, you know, right now we're building a full size Panzer tank <laughs> for a client on the other side of the world, a, Penz- a Penzic tent? A Penza German oh, Pen- Penzer. Penzer. oh, Sorry, tent. And yeah. I'm here missing out on building it, you know. I feel jealous yeah. of my uh, friends. Was there
1: uh, any problems on Warcraft that were really hard to solve? Distance charge manufacturing? What were uh, some of the tougher ones?
3: There, there are some, what may appear very silly little things to your listeners, but at the time, they're very challenging. Diamonds look like diamonds because they're diamonds. Simply put, when you have armor en- encrusted with diamonds, blue, uh, beautiful blue jewels, whatever, it is very, very hard to emulate that with the right level of fract, uh, uh, you know, the the, the, the light fracturing through the glass. So simply just manufacturing the cut glass diamonds on the armor was immensely challenging especially in a very short length of time we had to go out across the world to find people who could actually make them for us making diamonds this big that look real, cut perfectly because if you don't cut them perfectly, they won't shatter, uh, throw the light around perfectly. So, but always it's time. It's always the challenge of time. But, um, but you know, I, we love that challenge. It forces us to come up with new innovative solutions and, um, you know, bring it on. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the lovely questions. <laughs> oh,
1: that made my day. <laughs>
0: And now, join us as we drop in on a conversation with Duncan Jones, director of the new World of Warcraft movie.
1: So, Duncan, set the
0: stage for us. Where does, at the beginning of this movie, where does the story oh, pick Set the stage. I
4: don't know if I could do it. That's a very clever
3: question. I like it.
4: How much can I get out of it this place? Uh, the film is a first contact story. So, it takes place when orcs first meet humans. So. Knowing that, uh, we're probably going to see a little bit of what life was like before they had met each other and then when that first contact moment happens. Are there Orc wives, and do the Orcs reproduce like humans?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you're, you're very curious. <laughs> very curious.
4: Um, uh, there is... Thank
0: <laughs> there is There is...
4: A, actually, look, there's, a, there's a, a number of key characters on the Orc side. Uh, Duratan and Orc of Doomhammer who are kind of buddies. Duratan has a wife by the name of Draco. Oh. Draco was played by uh, an actress named Anna Galvin. Um... All of the orcs were performed motion passes. Anna was extraordinary. Her part was actually written smaller, and we loved what she was doing so much. Her part grew over the course of making the film. Um, she is uh, a, a key, and I think, uh, great surprise that audiences are going to have watching the movie. A character that they didn't expect that they are going to love as much as they love. So you're That's saying I ask good questions.
1: How much of the movie was world building? I mean, obviously Warcraft is the world of Warcraft. and uh, I mean the VR that we just saw definitely kind of backed that up. I mean uh, I mean was that a huge consideration that this was a kind of a world building thing? A, a huge,
4: a huge consideration and a huge attraction for me. You know, I, I had I've made two films previously, one was very small, one was kind of medium small. Um, but I I loved the idea and opportunity of being the person to realize this universe that Blizzard had created over 20 years Um, so it it, it was it was vast and it required so many different technologies Uh, Gavin Bouquet was the production designer on the film and made some extraordinary sets that we used up in Vancouver where we shot and then we had this wonderful work that Weta did about creating all of the armor and the weapons for the film and then ILM who came in and did the the, you know the the post production the VFX and they using motion capture Created our orchid cast. Um, So there was a lot of technologies that were kind of had to fit together and work. Um, It was a a vast project, but that's why it's been two and a half years that I've been working on it and and it won't be out for another 11 months. Will Orgrim be green in the film or is this about how he turns (laughs) green? Enough questions from you. (laughs) (laughs) No more, no more plot specific questions. He's not green there, is he? That's right. Uh, well, then
1: there might be more. Oh, there. <laughs> is there
4: a reason about, is there a reason for that? Green, green. Yeah. It's green and how orcs become green is, is very important in the telling of this story. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: What is your own history with Warcraft? Were you a player? Yes, or? I was.
4: Uh, I've been playing since uh, Orcs vs. Humans, which was a real-time strategy game 20 years ago. Um, I, have been a game player uh, ever since I got my first Atari I guess and then I played on the Commodore 64 and the Amiga and I got my first. Amigas
1: are great yeah, amazing <laughs> amazing. speedball too
4: I so, yeah there's so many amazing, amazing games um uh, Baldur's Gate games I mean, and, yeah. and all the, the Cinemaware games. I even played uh, It Came From the Desert. Which, there was a whole great series of games from the Cinemaware. Um, but that's not what you were asking. No, oh, I
1: asked you about Warcraft. Warcraft.
4: <laughs> um, yes, no, I've been, I've been playing since I was a human. humans not all the real-time strategy games. I actually spent more time, I think, on the real-time strategy games than I got to spend on World of Warcraft only because I was in college at the time. So, when I was like not working I was playing World of Warcraft and I had a clan um, that, that we ran that actually we used to play Ultima Online which was a different game and then we migrated from Ultima Online onto World of Warcraft like the whole clan went from one to the other um, but we played we played a number of games you know,
0: we played for a while on the, on the vanilla
4: sort of on, on beta and then on the vanilla version of World of Warcraft and then I kind of started to have less time to play as they started adding the, the sort of digital realms. So I guess kind of more of a vanilla world than Warcraft rock When you
0: have to live in a
2: movie like this for several years, yeah. I and mean, this is a huge epic story, big
4: epic for documentary do you I mean do you think at all about like there is a stigma to video game movies not being uh, or movies based on video games not being very good I think there have been some decent ones but yeah. do, you, do you approach this as a filmmaker I want to change all that like you know like Superman was for comic book heroes back in the 70s or back yeah. in 1989 or do you just not even I'm just thinking of this as a great film knowing me now a little bit and what I you know my background in games Obviously, I'm aware of the rough history of games to films, and it's always in the back of your mind, you know, it's been tough. No one's, Not many people have pulled it off successfully, certainly not to the scale that I would want Warcraft to be successful.
3: Uh,
4: I was never thinking, okay, how do I turn a video game into a great movie? I had an idea... Having played Warcraft for a while, about what made me love Warcraft, and and that was the idea that you could play on either side and be a hero. And that, I think, kind of lent itself to this idea of, okay, let's do a war movie where you've got you've got heroes on both sides and you empathize with both sides. How do you make that work in a, in a narrative sense, on in a, in a linear narrative path? How do you go back and forth between these two sides and find how they come into conflict and still care about both sides? I, I definitely get the sense that you will make the, the orcs three-dimensional characters. So 100%.
3: would you say Orgrim is
4: the heart and soul of this picture? i'd say or more no, groups I think I'd say Duritan is the heart of this picture. Oh, well, I'm on the orc side, but I would say Orgrim is. Orgrim is, in a way, almost the eyes of the audience. Oh, so um, how are you handling magic? Because a lot of filmmakers shoot too much; it looks corny, and so you don't want to touch it with a It's kind of funny. Uh, Bill Westenhofer, who was our VFX supervisor on the film. Is is a, a hardcore Warcraft, um, World Warcraft player, and he plays a mage, um, which really made it very easy to be able to say, all right, Bill. You know we have these spells at this moment but what are we casting <laughs> so working you know with Bill and with the guys at Blizzard I think we're very honest to the roots of the game and also Bill came off at the back of Life and Pi winning an Oscar on Life of Pi um, he's fantastic at what he does so so in a lot of a lot of the time the actual you know the, the, the nuances of what actually looked like it was very much in his hands but um, he did an amazing job and, and I think it was, yeah. awesome. it was beautiful do you, do Pandaria
3: existing in are the- No. Oh, <laughs> are we, uh, <laughs> any, are be, like, Too early, too early. Are there going to be any Easter eggs that will work out there with Lear Jenkins no, making an, an
4: awesome. appearance and, like that? There are certainly going to be Easter eggs. And I think, you know, the way we've done it, and, uh, and, I, and I think it, it works. I think Peter no, you know, Jackson know, probably anyway, must have gone through exactly no, the same process <laughs> when he was doing the first Lord of the Rings You know, he probably had a less active and passionate fan base of Tolkien readers, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Watch out for that, watch out, (laughs) But, But you know, Warcraft fans, they live many hours of their life in that world and in that universe. Tolkien fans don't do that. Not in the same way. You know, they read the books, they, they think about it, but they don't live in that world. World fans do. So I think there's a different level of, of, of engagement that World fans have. But Peter Jackson still had the same thing where he wanted to, you know, he told this story and he needed to make sure that it was true to the universe of Tolkien and then where he could plant plan, plan the Easter eggs. We've done the same thing. I don't think it's in any way distracting for our... Broader audience, and this is very much a film which is designed to be approachable for people who know nothing about war. You know, it's absolutely, that was key, because we wanted to tell a story that, that anyone could go to. But for those who do play Warcraft, there's a lot of stuff in there that they'll get a kick out of. Yeah, what would through your mind, 20, is this 20 years more of just fan base, millions and millions of fans, like, me decided to take on the project, and worried, scared, confident? I was doing fine until Blizzard, well, Chris Messon reminded me that over the lifetime of the game, 100 million people have played it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of passionate <laughs> um, No, I mean, I, you know, all I can do is, is try and deliver a film which works for me. And you know, working with Blizzard and the other guys, making sure that it is true to their you know, to the spirit of what they've done. Um, you know, they've seen it. Uh, I don't think I'll get in trouble with making and cry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm one of the few people who can boast I make Christmas cry. Um, so it's I, I think I think I think we've made something that, that fans will definitely engage with and enjoy. But as importantly, <laughs> a film which works for me on the filming level for, for everyone. Right. So one more question? Right. 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 Uh, what do you think makes a good fantasy story well, you know, I think what makes a good fantasy story is what makes any good story. It's, it's finding, you know, my first few films have all been about character, and, and this one's no, no different. I think if you can find someone, find I find something about someone that the audience uh, is surprised, resonates with them, then I think you're onto something, you're onto something good. Thank you. All right. Good
1: luck. Thank you. Good
0: luck. This concludes the first day of our San Diego Comic-Con 2015 coverage. Tune in tomorrow.